Let's notice in Zechariah chapter 14, passage we read, always at the feast, and certainly one that's very important to a person who's new in God's church and starts to look at the subject, because here we read very plainly, as Mr. Weston brought out in the opening night message, that Jesus Christ is king over all the earth. And so we know speaking of the future, that is not a part of the past. And it tells us in verse 16, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So we know that these days have certainly not been done away with. They're a part of God's future for all of mankind, and He certainly does not change. God does not waver. God does not treat things in a sense of the circumstances at the particular time. God is a light that is constant. And I have a New King James that I'll be using, and at the top of the page in the New King James, if you have one, you have a little summary. And it says, the nations worship the king. And today, brethren, I want to address the subject of how do you worship God? What does the Bible say about how we should go about our practice of worship? I don't know if it's something you've thought about. I know I, as a young person, was in the Catholic Church. You grow up into the Catholic Church. You're baptized as a baby. I attended parochial schools. My dad being in a service, he was in the Navy, There were times when I was in a Catholic elementary school, times I took catechism classes. The last time that I was actually in a parochial school, a Catholic high school, was the beginning of my sophomore year. And I was living with my grandparents at that time, and my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side were very devout in terms of their Catholic faith. And and so to me it was kind of a... Like, I had been apart from it for a period of time because we lived on an island up in the northwest. My dad was in the Navy. We lived on Whibby Island. It's connected to the mainland by a bridge called Deception Pass. And But it's still quite inconvenient. You're not as accessible as you would be. There's only one way on the island unless you come by boat or plane, and that's across the pass, that particular bridge. And so... I'd been away for a bit. I wasn't that interested in church. And then I went back. It didn't mean it too much to me, but it was sort of a part of my life that made me a little bit more aware of what I did and what I didn't do as I went forward in life. So we'll come back to the question of our worship. I'd like to point out to you that God's holy days are occasions, all of them, when we gather to worship God. Let's notice this in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23 is starting in verse 1. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. God says they're his. And he says they're holy convocations. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And in verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. And as you read through, which I'll not do, you'll find that each of God's holy days are described in their observance and also that they are holy convocations. Some days being a day of Sabbath rest, other days simply being a period of time when a certain practice is observed. And I think it's important to realize that. It's not just a time, it's a time when there's a certain practice or lesson. During the days of unleavened bread, it is, of course, that for seven days you must eat unleavened bread. The Bible is very clear, and it specifically says that in verse 6. I know there was a time among some in the church of God who said, you don't need to do it every day. It's not a ritual, brethren. It's a part of the lesson. It's a part of what God is teaching us during that period. We also see very plainly in terms of the next group of days that are observed, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, which are kept for seven days to the Lord. We find the first day in verse 35, there shall be a holy convocation. That's today. This day is a holy convocation. Then it goes on and describes the seven-day period. In doing so, it makes it clear that during this time, that you are to dwell in a temporary dwelling or a booth. Verse 42, you should dwell in booths for seven days. We had a question come up. I know one year we had considered the feast in Cincinnati, and at one point it was there among the brethren, is can we stay in our homes? Well, actually, during the feast, your home is a temporary dwelling. As you're going to services and so on every day, and there was a discussion. I know I talked to a few people who lived in Big Sandy when the feast was kept there. And some actually chose to allow others to use their home. Others stayed in their home. And we certainly know in the city of Jerusalem, they had so many people come as guests. But the practice there was, in a sense, if we were to look at it today, uh, put a tent on the yard or the top of the house or out in the back, uh, that you were reminded that where you are is temporary. And I'm sure we'll hear messages, or you have heard, the reason for that is because our presence here is temporary. And we look forward to God's kingdom. We look forward to something that is forever, not just for a period of time, not just the passing of a flower in the field, because that's how God looks at our life. And if you're honest ourselves, that is life. It goes very quickly. 
And when you come to the end of life, which we do not control, God does, brethren, it's over. And what we have, and the only hope we have, and our hope is in God. So these days are days when we gather with holy convocations. There are times when, in the Old Testament, offerings were given. And in doing so, they were worshiping God. They were following his instruction and worshiping him. We read in the book of Psalms, in Psalm chapter 95, Regarding the first day that is mentioned here, that is the Sabbath day, how they worshipped. In Psalm 95, verse 1, it says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. It's important we ask ourselves, how do we worship God? And I say that specifically because in the Scripture, one thing God specifically addresses We are not to do what others do. Notice in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God spoke to the children of Israel in starting in verse 29. It says, When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, So we're talking not about just one particular group, but plurality. And we certainly can look back and realize that different nations and different peoples, they worshiped in different ways. But what they did not have was the truth and the knowledge of the true God. It says, and you displace them and dwell in their land. Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them. After they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now that's the extreme. But God doesn't just include the extreme. He really says what they do and how they go about it, the attitude and the spirit of it. He does not want us to emulate 
I know in my own life I have to realize that there are certain things that have taken me many years and sometimes still crop up after all these years that was, in a sense, ingrained into me as a child. Certain teachings, certain doctrines, certain ways of thinking that you learn as a youth, especially if you go through parochial schools and you're not just going to church. You might have gone to church or maybe a Sunday school program. For my early years, I went to Mass, and then oftentimes I would go to Mass every day in a parochial school. And then we also had classes, and some of those classes were taught by nuns. Occasionally a priest would come and teach. Those are things I had to come to grips with. Ways of thinking. And I know I've talked to others who grew up in the Catholic faith. And they've had the same experience, especially if I bring out certain things. I've had times when I've spoken to someone and mentioned lessons I've learned. And I realize even as I'm saying it, a light's going off in their head that they haven't really examined themselves and considered how they thought in that particular part of their faith. Now, I did attend a very brief period, a evangelical uh, Protestant group, and that was because my mother, uh, who was listening to various radio evangelists, and we lived on uh, in up in Washington on Whidbey Island, there was a group out of Seattle, Washington. They had a little church in Coopville, and I didn't mind going. The minister's daughter was quite attractive. <laughs> I have told my wife about this. <laughs> I was too young, really, to get in trouble, but I surely thought about it. Uh, but I did not of any kind. But she was. She was very friendly. She was a very attractive young lady and very, very personable. And But that was for a very short period of time. I didn't really have anything that was ingrained in me. The only thing I remember from that experience is that my mother, my mother shared with some of those who attended it because they said they believed in the Bible. She shared to, with them what is said in the Word of God about a Christmas tree in Jeremiah. And actually, all of these ladies took all of their ornaments, they stomped them all together, and one of the ladies, and they all swept the floor together and threw them out. But before Christmas came, the others were buying Christmas ornaments to redecorate their trees. My parents, my mother particularly, stopped going. And that was during the period of time when God began to open her understanding. To me, I just thought, what a waste of money. (laughs) I just... It it didn't really impact me whatsoever except to observe it. But I think it's important we do that. We ask ourselves and think about, because of what God says. He goes on to tell us in verse 32, Deuteronomy 12, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. God wants us to observe it. Be careful about it. Make sure we do what he says. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. We're not really to add to and do something different than, because, see, God has a purpose in it. 
You might say, ultimately, what is the purpose of examining how we worship God? Isn't it really just important in principle that we do it from the point of view of submitting and, and putting Him first? Well, that's important. But to God, there's aspects of that that influence who we are, how we think, our emotions. In other words, they affect us in the most important because we have to ask, what's the goal? Is it only to show God we're submissive? No, it's really to fulfill in our life, in our heart, and it's so important we understand this, what the Bible tells us and reveals to us is the first and great commandment. Let's notice that in Matthew chapter 22. As Christ was asked, and he is very clear, he did not hesitate. In Matthew chapter 22, and he knew he was being, in a sense, tested. So he was asked, verse 36, teacher, and of course, this was by an attorney. I don't know if Christ lived in quite the same culture we do, but I know years ago in the Worldwide Church of God, we'd have an attorney who worked for the church address all the ministry. And I think most of the time, he would start his session by handing all of us a slip of paper with a picture on it. And it was a nice smiling face and instead of a nice smile across the lips, it was a zipper lip in nice U form. And his point was, keep your mouth shut. You're talking to someone about a legal matter or a police officer, close your mouth. And, and he had emphasized that. Some of you may know him personally. His name was Mr. Ralph Helge. Well, Christ was being asked by an attorney. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so if you want to ask the question, which I think is a very good question, why do I do it exactly the way God says, and why should I pay attention, and why should I take this message as the beginning of something that I look into, not just in this sermon, because I can only hit certain things, brethren. But there's a lot in the Bible that talks about how God wants us to do certain things in life. And when we do it His way, we get the fruit that He seeks. And that's literally... To love God with our heart, with all our soul, and with all of our mind. God will cover the basis. And I think it's important for us to understand that, to recognize it. We read in Acts chapter 24 and verse 14. Acts chapter 24, verse 14. These are uh, the words of the Apostle Paul. Acts 
and he, again, was also in a legal type of situation, he was defending accusations. In verse 14, and he, he basically says in verse 13, they cannot prove the things of which they now accuse me. The reason they couldn't prove them, brethren, because they were false accusations. But Paul went on to say, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Christ did not worship in the same manner as the Jews. He did not worship in some areas of practice in the way that he had grown up in being a Pharisee. But he knew the Bible. That God used him because of his knowledge, I think in part, to expound many difficult things, hard to be understood, that even to this day we have to really study and examine and put all the pieces together to fully understand some of the things Paul said. And are often twisted and continue to be twisted even to this time in this world. And so he made it very plain. So I worship the God of my fathers. Now I want you to notice that it's a way. It involves certain practices. It involves certain attitudes. It involves certain areas that others might consider that we're being exclusive or excluding others. There were certain things that were done that is what Paul did and how he worshiped God. But notice also, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. So he believed what we read in Leviticus. He understood the role of Christ as a sacrifice for sin. Didn't change the need and the laws but he understood how that was now being carried out through the blood of our Lord and Savior. He understood from the Bible the role and the need of a high priest. Christ is our high priest. And a high priest is very important in worshiping God. And it's very important, brethren, in our worship that we come before our Father in the name of Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice, because he is our high priest. And the Bible makes that very plain in the book of Hebrews. So we're not talking about a small subject. And I'm not here to just answer every question, every aspect of it. I really want you during the feast to look at certain areas that particularly have to do with the feast. And that we came here to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. And to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I was going to include that. I don't have much to add to what Mr. Weston covered. And so I decided I'm going to spend a little more time on something that actually has more facets, that touches us in different ways than our life. But it starts, it is first. When it talks about keeping the feast, it starts with 
we come to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. I think it's important to notice in verse 15 of Acts chapter 24, Paul said, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. He said something, actually, that was very controversial between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you read and consider what was happening, he threw a, I guess you would say, a bit of confusion into the uh, stance of his enemies. Because <laughs> he knew they would immediately be disputing that and arguing about it. God used a very wise man and a very talented individual as his servant. And that we know and read in the scripture of his calling. A very special man. Maybe such individuals as we go forward, God will use at the very end time. I trust that he will, frankly. And I think all of us should understand and appreciate it. And those things take place. The Bible also, and this is done by Jesus Christ, it directly links worship and service together. Let's notice this, and I'll just read the one passage. There are many others, but in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. And this, of course, is a time when Satan was tempting Christ. And in verse 9, it says, He, that's speaking of the devil, said to him, and he, take him, he had taken him up to an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Christ immediately linked two things together. Our service, which is our submission, our yielding ourselves to, and our worship. And brethren, they are, and you cannot separate them. You know, we live in a world which, honestly, unfortunately, is where we are. The only thing that has any weight in court is a written contract. And actually, many times, actions speak louder than words. And it's also true in the Bible in some ways. I've learned over the years, brethren, to take note not only of what God says, but even more so, what did God do? You know, one of the important things to understand regarding the holy days and the Sabbath, did Jesus Christ keep the Sabbath? Yes, he did, even when it was created. 
Did he when he walked this earth? Yes, he did. Will it be kept during his reign, his government? Absolutely. Do you think in life, in the kingdom of God, and we look to the future, that God will change the pattern of having a special time for his family? I don't think so. I can't prove that absolutely, but I don't think so, because God doesn't tend to change. That's not who he is. That's not his character. But please understand they link together. The Bible also makes it plain that we can have certain truths, but brethren, if we do not apply them properly according to the word of God, we worship God in vain. And I, I personally have to admit that one thing that very much was a surprise to me was to watch people who were part of the church of God turn to the Jews for guidance in certain areas of practice. I say that was a surprise because I know that as a minister back when I served in the Worldwide Church of God, I gave messages pointing out from the Scripture the words of Christ. We said that unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees, we will not be in God's kingdom. And also what it says and what we'll turn to here in Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 7. I'll start in verse 6. And I'm not going to go through the whole passage and explain all its details, but they had come with accusation. And the accusation, verse 5, says, Then the Pharisees and scribes answered, or asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Please stop to think about that. Because we could look at that and say, What's wrong with washing your hands after you've been in the marketplace? They were doing it for religious reasons. And the religious reasons that God had given in the Old Testament did not involve the multitude of people. It involved those who specifically had service and service to God. So they took something that applied not to the multitude and applied it. And of course, in doing that, it lessened and mitigated the lesson that God wanted them to have regarding those who served Him and served in His temple. It changed the, I guess you'd call it the landscape. And as we read, we're not to take from nor to add. And this is really a case where they did it. And so He said, they honor Me with their lips, but their heart Because if your heart's with someone, you really listen. And if you realize you're not, you make it a point to listen. You try to communicate. You try to understand. Because it's not about yourself. 
The listening is actually simply caring. It's about the person who's speaking to you. Whether it be God, your wife, your children, a friend. It's what it's about. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. Now Christ goes on and uses other examples of things that they did. Some of them far more serious in the terms of their consequence. Have a different kind of reaction. But it's interesting to think about what happens if you did what they did. What happens if you say you could give a gift to the temple and therefore you would not have responsibility towards your parents? Because that is part of what Christ brought up. And it affected a relationship which God protected. And that was the responsibility they had toward their parents to honor their parents. We could argue and say, what? You know, humanly, wouldn't it be much more important that we honor God first? In fact, I could turn to the scriptures and try to prove it to you. Luke chapter 14, you know, where very plainly says, if you do not honor God above your parents, your mom and your dad, your brother, sister, even yourself. But what would I be doing? I would be twisting and distorting God's instruction. And what would I also be doing? I would be distorting and twisting the fruit that would be a part of the life of the individual who followed that deception. And that's what I really want you to understand. Is that when we worship God in truth, then we have in our life the fruit. It becomes our heart our mind, and our soul. We become the tree that God wants. A tree that will produce the fruit that God seeks. And it's so important we understand that. And what God sees, brethren, is the heart. There's another sermon I've given, I'll not be giving here or probably at the feast, but... You know, there's different ways we can touch our own heart. And I'll just mention this to you. Maybe just as a Bible study for yourself. There's something I've learned in just my work. If you are careful what comes from your lips, you can change your heart. As God says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the truth is, if you can... Grab hold of yourself. Hold your anger. Hold your frustration. Hold your mouth in something you may be emotionally react to. And you think it through and think, how do I best serve or how can I best represent how I feel and what the truth is? It will touch your life. And over a period of time, you will change. It will change your heart. Because God's given us the knowledge of something that interacts our mouth and our heart. I mean, if we control the one, we can begin to influence the other. 
It's not magic. It just simply happens over time. And part of it, I think, is just the process of having to hold your mouth and keep it shut. It gives you time to think and consider and weigh what you would have said. And you realize, maybe that's not what I want to say <laughs> or what I should have said. And then you begin to ask yourself, what should have I said or what should I say? And suddenly you're beginning to think not just about yourself or the situation. You have a bigger picture. You have a different perspective. I'm not going to go more into that. But brethren, it's important to understand what God wants as a fruit in us is a heart. Because that's how he sees us. That's what it reveals to us in the scripture. God does not see as man sees. It makes it very plain, in, both in First Samuel, when the Bible speaks of David, that God did not see as man sees. God sees the heart. And you can read in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, that David, and that's the subject of the discussion in First Samuel, was a man after God's own heart. It's interesting in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 38, but in 39, as the temple was being dedicated, in the dedication, it brings out in verse 39, which I'll not turn to, but it simply says, God knows the hearts of all the sons of men. So how does God see us? Not outwardly. And what's important to God is the heart. And when we talk about the subject of how you worship, it's so important we understand that if we do it God's way, it produces in us a fruit. And that fruit, brethren, produces what God wants. And that's why if you read on in the book of Mark, you'll find Christ brings up and explains to his disciples it's not what enters the stomach that pollutes a man. It's what enters his heart. Notice in verse 18, it says, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? doesn't mean it's good for him. doesn't mean it's clean to eat. No, it can certainly have health impact. Some things we have a pretty good understanding about. Some things we may not. We just trust God. Clean and unclean, brethren, is an area of faith in God. In some areas, we can see the reason for it. But what Christ was bringing out was even more important. It says, because, verse 19, it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated. And what defiles a man is what enters within. Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders. All these evil things come from within, verse 23, and defile a man and a woman. So the subject of worshiping God is about your heart.
It's about what God's doing in your life. It's about the preparation that you will go through. It tells us in John chapter 4, verse 22. John chapter 4, verse 22. says, you worship. He's talking to the woman at the well. What you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And you, brethren, and I know the truth is speaking of is the Word of God. You can read that in John 17. Thy word is truth. So I'm going to open a door to look at some areas that have to do with the simple reality of worshiping God. We heard a message this morning. I'd also like to tie into this in some ways because what God reveals to us is that God's made us a part of something when we became a part of Him. When we entered a covenant, do you realize that the Bible specifically says that you were baptized into the body of Christ? A lot of people read over that. Let's notice that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. We live in a time in the church of God when people say, no, I go to the church of my choice. I, I really had that thrown in my face probably almost 20 plus years ago. I had resigned from the Worldwide Church of God because I certainly could not agree with its direction or teachings. I'd already become a part of the ministry of the Global Church of God. I met someone who told me they were attending another church of God. I said, oh, that's where you remember. He, he very quickly corrected me. He said, no. He said, I'm not a member. That's just where I go. I was taken back by that. I didn't know what to think about that. I decide where I go. <laughs> I'm not a member. That's just where I go. Please, brethren, think about that. Because it defies God's word. But I think it's important for us to understand what God says. He makes it plain, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. There are some people who want to apply that in a very general manner. You read the rest of this chapter and tell me how in a general manner God had appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healing, helps, administrations, and variety of tongues. Because that is not, that concept is not 
what the Scripture speaks of. It's not what is said in Ephesians chapter 4. It speaks very specifically here and in Ephesians 4 that God, He Himself has set some. And I think it's important for us to understand. That's the Bible. I know we live in a sometimes confusing situation. But please understand we live in a time also that we've always sort of understood there'd be more than one church of God error. And that Christ, for whatever his reason or purpose, I think the more I live, the more I see, God's allowed people to go to areas that reveals their weaknesses and their faults. And he's allowed kind of a separation of people who have certain dedication and strengths and people that, as the world goes forward, will need to learn certain lessons. Because that is what you read in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But what it does say to everyone is listen to what God says to every single church era. We all have something to learn from what he says to everyone. So how do we worship God? Well, I'd like to start where Mr. Weston spoke of. And that's we honor God or respect. Let's notice in the book of Malachi, I appreciated this morning's sermonette. Uh, it didn't start where I'm going to start. Malachi chapter 1, he started in verse 8. I'm going to start here in verse 6. Because one of the things you'll find in the Bible when you look at those who serve God, in the Old Testament, God was very displeased with the priest. In fact, the word displeased is a soft word <laughs> for what God says. And what he says to them is something that will help us to understand things that we should be careful of. In verse 6, it says, a son, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priest who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food in my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the t- table of the Lord is contemptible. You know, we, I'll skip forward in the same chapter. Another thing that says, God says in verse 11, the last part, For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it. I've seen that. Go today out on the internet and read certain websites, and it's plastered all over the place. People at one time who knew of God's Sabbath and His holy days, and today who sneer at and are contemptible toward what they were a part of. I would always thought in a way physically they'd just move on, you know. If I was a part of something I didn't agree, I'd just move on. It's a big world. We have a very short time. Why would I turn around and be all focused on something I'm not not a part of and didn't agree with. 
But it is what happens. And it's very evident. It's interesting when you think about the reality of it. I'd like to go to chapter 2, verse 7. It says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. See, there's a way. And that way, brethren, is by observing the things that God tells us to do. By practicing the things he's given us instruction regarding. That was the way of the church of God. They took God's word for what it said. They believed what Christ said in Matthew 4, 4. That they should live by every word of God. They were a kind of people, brethren, who spoken of in Isaiah 66 who had great respect and feared the word of God and feared God. And yet they were humble in it. And God looked on them. And the priest, it says, in going on here, verse 8, but you've departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. To emphasize some things and not to even mention others. Or, well, that's not important. You know, I I heard a phrase many years ago that to me was a total deception. That's not important to salvation. You know something? Everything that's spoken of in the Bible is important. Period. We don't categorize and decide this is and that isn't. We don't take away from and add to. Everything God says is important. It all has purpose. And if somebody begins to say, well, that's not important to salvation, walk away. If they're talking about something that's in the Bible, you're wasting your time. I've had people give me papers and various things. Many times I read the opening page and see something that's not right. I do not waste my time. Time is pretty precious. It's become even more precious to me, in all honesty, I think most of you know I had a heart attack in the month of May, had quadruple bypass surgery. I'm still recovering somewhat, but I've been very blessed, and God's been very merciful. But one thing I've really come to understand is Labor Greer needs to get his act all together. (laughs) And you're in the middle of a heart attack, you don't know what the future is. You don't control it. And I was literally, I I drove home after church in Indiana. I didn't want to be in Indiana and have to deal with it. I wanted to be home and have my wife with me. And she and I together went to emergency. And all I asked for was God would be first patient and keep me. And then after that, it happened to me actually on Derby Day in Louisville and that God would provide good care. I'll share something with you that I learned many years ago through my wife's experience. 
My wife, Nancy, had breast cancer. She had a wonderful doctor, Dr. Hoagland. He's now retired. He was a man who was very dedicated. He didn't have the truth, but he did have certain understanding, and he was very dedicated to serving others. He spent part of his time in the third world, just leave his practice. It was always booked up, and he'd go and spend months in the third world every couple of years taking care of other people. I had a very brief time. I walked into his office, and here in the wall was a tapestry. And as a subject we, we have in the Church of God at times have sort of struggled with. But in the tapestry, there were four words. And there was a kind of clarity in him, in those words. And I asked him, I said, Dr. Hoagland, it's, it's beautiful. It was a handmade tapestry by a tribe that he had served and had gone there to be there for them. And I said, are those your words? And he said, yes. He said, it's what I asked them to weave into the tapestry. And it was very plain. Doctors treat, God heals. And you know, brethren, if you see that, and you realize a doctor cannot heal you, you don't have conflict. You're not going to a doctor to heal you. If you are, you've got a problem. And you have a problem on two levels. One is you're looking for the wrong place, but you're asking a man to do something he cannot do. All he can do is treat you. And so for me, it was like a moment of clarification. It just suddenly, it just made it so plain to me how we should look at the topic. And so now there's in that, obviously, decisions we have to make. We have to make, and often today in our society, we're told here's the different ways. I was told that. And I said, no, I heard what might be. It turned out that, yes, I was in that situation. I could do this or that. I'd already told the cardiologist, no, if that's where I am, this is what I want to do. They came back and double-checked with me. I said, I thought I said. And he, and it was actually his assistant. He said, that's what the doctor said. I said, that is what I will do. And so I, I share that because of how much it helped me. It was a clarification, something I heard many, many words spoken about, but never clarified. They had shown partiality in the law, verse 9. Those are not things, brethren, God seeks. Let's notice in Psalm 119, I have a much bigger sermon than I have time for. Not unusual. Psalm 119, starting in verse 57. When we think of worshiping God, I think it starts with what David said. Verse 57, he says, You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I have entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. You know, brother, we can have weaknesses, and we are human beings. We're weak. 
The flesh is weak. We seek, we desire. The spirit is willing. Paul speaks of that in his struggle. Don't get discouraged because you struggle. Realize God is extremely merciful. I have more to say about that in my next message. As I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I am a companion to all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. And so we start by honoring God. We start where it speaks of in Psalm 145 by giving God glory and honoring him. In Psalm 145, verse 1, it says, I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. I think a really honest question to ask yourself is how much time do you spend praising God? thanking him, showing appreciation for his love and mercy. I have a feeling, brethren, every one of us, including myself, can spend a lot more time expressing our heart of thanksgiving, appreciation of God's mercy and his grace. It certainly is a pattern and example of David. It certainly is what we sing in church. Many of the songs we sing and have already sung here are in praise to God. I noted particularly when we sing regarding Babylon, I believe that was Psalm 137, something is said, and I had not noticed this before. I believe it's Psalm, yes it is. Psalm 137, verse 4. It says, how shall we sing or can we sing the Lord's songs? They were in Babylon. They were captive. They were being jeered and made fun of. But they literally asked the question, as in our hymnal it says, you know, can we sing God's songs, the eternal songs? It dawned on me suddenly that they had other songs that they were part of Israel But they also had songs that were directly associated with worshiping God. And we do too. How well do you know them? How many of them could you sing driving your car down the road? I have to admit to myself, I can sing a few of them. I I love to sing. In a sense, private, nobody else wants to hear me, I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> but, you know, singing is an expression of your emotions and your heart. When we have music here at church, we, we need to think about the words and, and what is being said, because that's really what God wants. 
God wants us to sing with understanding. Notice that in Psalm 47. Psalm 47, verses 6 and 7. If you sing with understanding, now the words reverberate not just in your mouth and the tone, they reverberate within you. They're an expression to God. Verse 6 says, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. That's so important. With understanding. Can you get too old to sing? In Psalm 104, verse 33, David said, is the Psalm of David, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. As God intends, brethren, and revealed in his word, that through music, which is an expression of emotion, that we can express ourselves to him. And rather, we can sing the eternal songs, because we have them in our church. Songs that really spring from the Bible from the book of Psalms and David and many of David's writings. I often have wondered someday when God brings us together as his people, will we find that we're singing similar songs, maybe a little different music and different instruments? I wonder. We might ask, you know, the question of some, well, how, how do you sing this particular psalm? And then we'd listen. Well, this is what we did. I don't know. Maybe we'll be sort of shocked to find out through God's Spirit we're far closer than we even think or know. I don't know. But what I do know is how God expressed through David, a man after God's own heart, how he worshipped God and what was important to him. He also praised God continually for his mercy. He was thankful for God's mercy. Notice in Psalm 103 in verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. What's interesting, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he speaks of doing so from all that is within me. That's what I read in Matthew chapter 22. All that is within me, I learned to love God. And that's, so important that we see that, we understand it. Because, brethren, it's what builds that relationship. It's what's pleasing to God. 
I would like to read one passage particularly that has to do with the priest. I, I would encourage you to maybe read the entire account of God's relationship with Eli and those who were a part of his family and their service. Let me look at my notes here and find the particular passage. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And in dealing with that relationship where the sons of Eli literally, as priests, defied and defiled God and did not show him honor, God says something that I think it's really important to understand because for that family, it was a turning point. That family had been greatly blessed by God. But two young men who the father did not correct changed forever what happened to that family as it went forward. In First Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, Now, Why did God say this? Verse 29, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offerings, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? In other words, Eli actually, he didn't approve of necessarily, but he did, in fact, de facto become party to it. Because he didn't correct it. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. What an incredible blessing. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, shall be lightly esteemed. We're here to honor God. We have been given tremendous opportunity, brethren. I'm going to take advantage of and tell my wife is that I want to include in this message something that you will not be able to ignore for the rest of the feast. That's why I've concluded particularly the example of the priest. You see, a promise has been given to us. It's right here. I'll read it if you don't mind from here. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The rest of this feast, you're going to look at that. (laughs) It will be there. I'd like you to think about what it says then in Malachi, because see, God doesn't end the account of those who defiled him, who did not honor him, with only their story. There's another story that also has to do with those who are part of this. It's in Malachi chapter 3. And I'd like to start in verse 13 so we're reminded of those who God's not going to continue in his service. 
those that he addressed in Malachi. And it might be helpful to read all of it. I've only touched sort of an overview and a highlight. And in verse 13 of chapter 3, it says, Your words against me, or have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. Have you heard that? I did. It's useless. Free at last. I'm free from this bondage. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners? I, I did not understand any of that. The greatest blessing of my life is the church of God. The greatest blessing, blessing in my life in terms of life changing was the opportunity, which I didn't appreciate at first at the time, to be a student in Ambassador College. It prepared me for things that touched my life all the way to the present day and will continue. I just did not understand. It was not in me, brethren, to feel the things that I heard. So now we call the proud blessed. I saw some of that. Now if you you know, rub shoulders with certain people. You played politics. It worked. It probably will always work with human nature. And the concept of friendship is not quite the same as politics. Please understand that. Any man who has responsibility will look to people he already knows. Because he has responsibility. You have something on your shoulder. And you want to start with, in a sense, someone you know that you know what they'll do. And, you know, there's kind of a a proven history that you can rely upon. And as you serve and you continue, you reach out from that. Rather than that's not politics, that's taking your responsibility seriously. That's taking to heart the duties that you've been given. And to try to carry them with a sense of responsibility and duty. Are politics apart at times that follow? Yes, they can Should they? No. Not in God's church and not among people of God. But that's what he's talking about. Call the proud blessed. Those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Then those who feared the Lord, verse 16, spoke to one another. And he listened and heard them. When it speaks of fear in the Bible, it talks about reverence. Yes, there is kind of a fear in the sense of how serious it is. That it is life and death. That there is no other name by which you can be saved. There is no other hope that anyone has except the truth of God. The reality, that's the only hope that exists. The only hope for mankind that exists is the promise of the return of our Lord and Savior. There's not some other hope. And it's important for us to understand or put it into perspective. It's the reality. It is what it is. I'm not going to change it. You're not going to change it. 
God's made promises that we can be thankful for and have faith in. We can certainly hope that men turn, but I don't see that happening in the present world we live in. I haven't seen anyone that looks like Nineveh, frankly. No one. No nation, no city, no people. But it does say here, going on, verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the Lord, those who have respect and who honor him, those who sing praise to him and who have a thankful heart, those who seek to love him and are mindful of his ways and try to follow them, who understand that we are to love God with all our heart, all our mind and all of our being. For those who fear the Lord, who meditate on his name, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. That's an interesting statement because right now today for a lot of people, that is very difficult. I think when you really just totally look at God's word, it is not quite so difficult. It's, brethren, it's difficult because of all the human things and all the things that touch our lives as human beings. But if we just isolate ourselves and look only at what God says, and it guides our path, and it becomes, as David said, a lamp to our feet, it's not so difficult. But the time will come you again shall discern between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. I think, brethren, when you read this in the context, we're speaking of those who will be the priest of God forever and ever.